Well, good morning. I'm Stephen, pastor here, and I want to invite you to look into your bulletins. Um, the verses that we're going to be looking at are there. There's also a place to take notes. And we are starting, uh, actually we're in the middle of a series called Heaven is Here. Uh, the graphic for it is up there. It's also on the cover of the bulletin. Um, I love this graphic because I think it's a really good picture of the message of the passage of the Bible that we're looking at in this series. Um, I was actually talking to somebody uh, this last week, and they asked me, I found out I was a pastor, they said, oh, what are you, um, what are you teaching about? Like, what, what are you talking about in your church? And I said, oh, we're doing this series called Heaven is Here. And their response was, how is this heaven? I was like, well, yeah, you're right. There is a tension, isn't there? Um, there is so much wrong with the world. I mean, how could you think that heaven is here? Um, and I was able to say that when you follow Jesus and you begin a personal relationship with God, you realize that God is present with you. And knowing God brings heaven here. Even in the awful chaos of life, God brings us tastes of heaven in the here and now. And it's just like this graphic. I mean, this graphic is beautiful, and yet the graphic's incomplete, right? This graphic is beautiful, and it's, it's kind of, it's broken around the edges, across. Um, there are things that are not perfect about it. Um, it creates, there's this tension, right? Our lives are this tension that are filled with, on the one hand, God coming in Jesus, and then the world still being broken. Um, and the question for us is, how do we respond? I mean, think about it. In your life, when you feel this tension, how do you respond? It seems like a lot of times we complain. You know, it's a pretty natural response to the brokenness of the world. We complain. Sometimes we get angry. Um, many people doubt the God side of the tension. They begin to think that, well, God is either not real or God is, he doesn't care. Um, and some people just bail on God altogether. And what I love about the Bible is that it doesn't hide from this tension. The Bible doesn't stick its head in the sand and act like everything is wonderful. Or, and it doesn't say, if everything isn't wonderful in your life, then you're doing it wrong. Like, that's not the message of the Bible. Um, the Bible invites us to respond to this tension with hope. With hope. Um, Christian hope brings heaven here. So when nothing in our life seems to change, hope does change things. Um, and that's what we're going to see today in the Bible when we look at Romans 5 at, uh, verses 1 and 2. So let's read these together. They'll be up on the screen also in your bulletin. It says this, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of of God. So our calling, our, the invitation from the Bible is to hope in the glory of God. Now, without this hope, we tend to need to fill the tension or cover over the tension or try to address the tension with things like entertainment. We need to fill our lives with entertainment so that we don't have to face the tension. Um, some of us will look to the approval of other people and as long as we are surrounded by people who think that we're cool or think that we're significant, then our life actually means something. Um, still, others of us 
will, without this hope from God, will look at career accomplishments, relationships. Um, sometimes we'll medicate the tension by just with alcohol or drugs. Um, we're searching for something that will make us happy. Uh, I was talking with someone this week who told me, hey, you know, I'm realizing now that your church has an incredible opportunity with 50-year-olds. He said, all of my friends who have become empty nesters are now significantly unhappy. Their kids are gone, and the husband and the wife are looking at each other, and they're thinking, we don't want this life. Like, is this, is this what we have left? Um, and so he said, if your church could offer something to help them, you'd make a lot of money. <laughs> so, business guy, business guy here. So, um, but verse 2 says that God's answer, actually, God's answer for not just the empty nesters, but for all of us, is that we need, we need to learn how to hope. We need to learn how to hope. And so let's talk first about a definition. Um, and I got, I've got a, just a, a definition I got from a book called Faithful Feelings by Matthew Elliott. He said this, he said, hope is a positive expectation for something in the future. Or it's the emotion that comes from believing that something good might or will happen in the future. So hope is just, it's looking forward to something. It's believing that the future will be better than the present. And this kind of hope affects everything. Um, your attitude flows from whether or not you have hope. Um, not just your attitude, but our whole outlook on life, our efforts, um, our willingness to persevere or to give up, the words that we say, how we relate to other people, all of these things are impacted by our hope or our hopelessness. And it's important to understand that sometimes hope is big picture meta narrative of where we think the world and history are going. Other times our hope is much more mundane and the nitty gritty. Like if I think I'm going to have money to pay the bill at the end of the month, then I feel much less anxiety than if I'm pretty convinced at the end of the month I'm not going to be able to pay that bill. Right? And so... Um, so hope gets huge, but it also gets little uh, in our lives. Um, and so here's something that a rabbi in a Nazi concentration camp said to his son about hope. He said this. He said, humans can live three weeks without food, three days without water, but only three minutes without hope. And it's important for us to understand that not all hope is equal. There is good hope and bad hope. Um, bad hope is wishful thinking. It's hoping for something that's never going to happen. So, for instance, I hope I win the lottery. And actually, I don't hope that because I know that won't happen, and so I, don't, I, don't, I choose not to play the lottery because I feel like that's just throwing money away. Um, but people that hope they win the lottery, that's not a good hope because there's not much chance it's actually going to happen for you. Um, a lot of other people hope this. They say, I hope that this election will fix this country's problems. I don't think that's a good hope. I don't think that's a good hope. Um, so many people every day say this. They say, I hope that this product will make me happy. 
I mean, this kind of hope is offered to us every day, all the time. And it's used to manipulate you. It's used to control you. But good hope, on the other hand, good hope motivates us. Good hope actually gives us direction in life. And good hope even transforms us from the inside out. And so what's the difference between good hope and bad hope? Um, The difference is what we hope in. Okay, it's the object of our hope. And so we're going to talk about the object of Christian hope in just a minute, but we have to remember something about hope first. There's something we have to remember about hope, that hope is both a noun and a verb. Okay, hope is a noun and a verb. So it's not just confidence that the future is going to be better, right? That would be a noun. But hope is also a verb. It's a spiritual exercise, So what do I mean by that? Well, the more that you hope, the more hope you will have. Okay, hope actually grows our faith. And so we don't just need hope, but we need to hope. So this is the thing that we can do. Hope is the thing that we can do when we're stuck, when we're frustrated, when we're angry, when we're nervous, when we're anxious. Um, In fact, this is kind of the definition of hope, right? Because it's, it's when life is bad that we need to hope. So hope is something that you do in order to have. Um, And so when you don't have hope, we could say it this way, that's the time to hope. In that book, Faithful Feelings, um, talking about the Bible's hope, it says this. It says, in the New Testament, hope had power to uplift and encourage in the present because it was based on sure future expectations. Hope in the New Testament is the same emotion that's found in the world. The difference in Christian hope is not the nature of the emotion or the fact that it's not an emotion, but it's the object of the emotion that is different. So if the difference is the object, what is the object of the hope that the Bible invites us to have? What are we supposed to hope in? Well, this verse tells us. This verse tells us, verse 2, at the end of verse 2, it says that we hope in, or hope, we have the hope of the glory of God. So what are we supposed to hope in? We're supposed to hope in the glory of God. Cool, we done? Everything clear? So this phrase, the glory of God, right? Most people, you're not the only one thinking, huh? Like, what exactly is that? I'm not allowed to ask that question, am I? Because that sounds like kind of a churchy term, and if I don't know the answer, it seems like everybody else probably does. So if I don't know it already, I'm sort of out out of luck, right? I mean, this is what the phrase glory of God kind of does to us. Um, What is the glory of God, and what does it mean to hope in that? I think this is one of those phrases that if you can't define it clearly, how can you hope in it? right? So here's my best effort to simply define this phrase so that it could inform your hope and impact your life. Okay, you ready? The glory of God, here it comes. The glory of God equals the impact of God's presence. Okay, the glory of God is the impact of God's presence. There is a future aspect of hope. 
uh, in the Bible. It's, it's the future. It's the fullness of God's presence. God has made incredible promises to care for the world, not just to care for, but to renew the world. God has this extravagant plan to fix everything that's wrong with the world. And when he does that, that will be the revelation of his glory. So God's glory will be revealed when he puts the entire world to rights. When all of the sad things become untrue. That is the day of the glory of God. And so glory is something that God has. But it's... it's and when you are around God you feel the impact of his presence. Okay, his glory is the impact of his presence. And God actually isn't the only one who has glory. Okay, and I think by understanding how human beings also have glory, just in different measures, you can better understand what the glory of God is. So about six years ago, I was at a wedding rehearsal. And during the rehearsal, uh, there was someone who was standing and and there was a moment when she was singing this song, and during her standing of in place, she wasn't singing the song because it was a rehearsal, but while she was standing in place, the groom grabbed me and said, hey, listen, he kind of said it quietly, but he's like, hey, listen, um, tomorrow during the ceremony, she's not actually going to sing this song. Somebody else is going to sing the song. And I said, okay. And he goes, yeah, he can't be here right now, so, but he'll be here tomorrow, so it'll be somebody else. So don't freak out if she's not there to sing. And I said, okay, cool, all right. So then during the ceremony, the next day, during this moment in the ceremony, um, there was this moment of silence. And I saw the girl, she was sitting down because she had sung earlier a different song, but there was nobody else. <laughs> I was like, so, and it, it was silent and the silent got a little bit awkward and I'm like looking around. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I hear from behind the rows of people, I hear someone playing and this soft singing from, I don't know, probably 100 feet away. And I look, and there's a guy, and he's walking up, and he's got his guitar, and he's playing, and he's singing, and everyone's turning around looking. Um, the, the bride, like, freaked out and had this, you know, amazing moment for her. And as the guy walked forward, I'm like, Wow. This guy can sing. This guy seems like know what he's doing. Like he's walking, but like, I don't know, the way he carried his, you know, the way he carried his guitar, his voice was kind of angelic in some ways. I was like, dang, this guy's really good. And I thought, you know what? He's got glory. This guy's got glory. And it wasn't just his voice. It wasn't just his playing. It wasn't just his sort of demeanor, the way he carried, it was all of those things. You know, all those things, I was like, wow, like this guy should be someone, you know, he should be, he should record something. And so after the ceremony, um, I grabbed the groom and I was like, hey, who was that guy? Because he left. Um, I was like, who was that guy? And he told me, he gave me some name and I'm like, I have no idea who this is. So whatever. And so I go home and I go onto Facebook because it was six years ago, Instagram wasn't around. And, uh, and I look up this guy, he's got seven and a half million followers it was Jason Mraz. This guy had glory. <laughs> this guy had glory. Um, he was a friend of the groom. 
came and sang as a, as a favor to the groom. But again, glory is the impact of your presence. Like, I didn't even know who he was, but I knew he was someone, right? Like, he was able to do things that nobody else can do. And so that story gets kind of magnified when you think about, like, the Beatles or Michael Jackson, right? There's people who have listened to their music over and over and over and over again and can like have memorized it, could sing it blind, no, that's not, that's, could sing it without thinking, right? Blindfold, can't sing, never mind, okay. So, um, but then they go to a concert, right? And what do they do? When they see them, they're a hundred feet away. And what happens when they're in the presence of Michael Jackson or the Beatles? They lose it, right? They scream and shout and cry and weep. They're like undone because they have glory. They've got glory. They're human beings and yet they feel like they're more than human beings, right? And this is, this is a very small picture of the impact of presence, Right? For human beings, it's about as big as you get, where someone is like undone, freaking out, crying, sobbing, weeping. The Bible says that when God shows up, the impact of his presence is also, like, it's breathtaking. It's life transforming. When God shows up in the Bible, he often has to like cover himself up and veil himself so that people aren't completely undone. And so God has this kind of glory in the extreme. And there are people that you know, there are people even in our church that have a sense of this kind of glory, okay? And it's, it's all scaled and stuff based on, you know, our esteem of them, really. I mean, that's where the glory comes from. It's, and that glory, I've thought a lot about this, and there, there's a lot more detail that we can go into that we don't really have time to, but... Um, but the idea that you know, there are people in your life that, that see God in everything, and, and there's something about that, right? There are people that you know who have a joy in them. They have a sense of God's peace, and their response to things is different, you know? Like, that's, that's a form of glory. And now this verse says that we hope in the glory of God, or we hope for the glory of God. And what does this mean? Well, if glory, if the glory of God is the impact of God's presence, then hoping in that is that we want more of that impact. We want more of God's glory. We want more of God's presence here on earth. And so when God comes, God makes all things like him. That's what happens. Everything around God either becomes like him or ends up being pushed away because it's not like him. And the good news of Jesus is that in Jesus, he purifies people who aren't like him. So none of us are like God, and yet Jesus makes us pure. He makes us, I mean, through forgiveness, through reconciliation, he purifies people who want God who aren't fully like him yet. And this idea of glory um, really is the story of the Bible. We could say that the Bible is, if you want to make it rhyme, but the Bible is actually the story of glory. Um, that 
For, for those of you who like to sort of step back and not just look at the verses that we're looking at, but want to see the bigger picture of the flow of Paul's thinking throughout this letter, he's telling the story of God's glory. Because in Romans 1, he says that God actually made the world and filled the world with his glory. We are made in God's image, so we are the pinnacle of the impact of God's presence. So when God made human beings in his image, he added glory to the world where it was like the glory level was ever increasing as God made more and more things that reflected him. And then he made human beings and his glory went up in terms of manifesting his glory on earth. And so what does this mean? This means that actually you and I, we were made to make the world experience the impact of God's presence. That's what it means to be made in God's image, is that you and I, our function, our purpose, we will, we can say it this way, we will be happiest and more things will line up as right in our lives when we make efforts to manifest God's presence and the impact of God's presence on earth. And so this is when we were made. Romans 1 tells us this. But Romans 1 also says that we took this glory that God gave us and we traded it in. And we went to a pawn shop and we got 20 bucks for it and we have used that 20 bucks and we have bought all kinds of things. We now worship all kinds of things that aren't God and don't have anywhere near the glory of God. We spend our lives worshiping things that aren't glorious, but actually hurt us and hurt the world. They dehumanize us. Things like money, things like power, things like sex. And these things aren't necessarily bad. They're actually gifts from God to bring about his glory. But when we worship them, when we put them first and make our decisions because of those things, we become dehumanized. Romans 3 sort of summarizes this whole story and says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so sin in the Bible, man, I don't know what you've been taught, but sin is not just breaking a bunch of rules that God arbitrarily designs. No, no, sin is us living as less than the glorious image bearers of God. God thinks so much more highly of us than we do. God has so much more in store for us. And he's got so much more that he wants for us to do than live for the filth of this world. And sin is us failing to impact the world with the presence of God through our lives. Well, Romans 3 goes on to say that in Jesus, that God came and interrupted that story of us destroying God's glory. That Jesus came to reestablish God's glory on earth. Jesus came as the visible expression of the invisible God. Jesus came in some ways as the perfect embodiment of a human being made in God's image. Okay, so in both ways. Jesus was God and so revealed what God was like, but also as a human being, Jesus revealed the glory of God. Through Jesus, God like downloaded himself into the earth. He showed us the impact of his presence. 
I mean, you see this in the Gospels. When you read about the story of Jesus, you see the effect that he had on people. You see the way that his actions and his words impacted people with the presence of God. And so Jesus does this. He comes and he brings the presence of God and impacts the earth with the presence of God. And Romans 5.2 says, Now we hope for more. Like now we hope for more. We long for more of that. We long for God's glory. We hope for God's glory to come to fill, to completely fill the earth. We hope for God's glory to be fully manifested on the earth. And we know it's coming on the day Jesus returns. We hope for that day. We long for that day. That day that everything, where God makes everything right. And so hope as a noun means being confident that that day is coming. Okay, having hope in the glory of God as a noun, that means knowing for sure that Jesus is coming back and he's going to finish the work that he began at his death and his resurrection. But remember, hope is also a verb. Okay, and as a verb, hope means longing for more of the presence of God. It means longing for the day when God will bring that reality here. And so this verse invites us to spend a portion of our lives hoping for the future. This is how we're supposed to respond to the tension of the brokenness of this life. By hoping, by hoping and longing for the future longing for that day when everything is made right. You kind of want it, and this verse is giving you permission to be frustrated that it's not here yet, to, to wish it were more, to, to wish it were here, to wish it would come. And as you long for it, what's going to happen is that your life will be will become preoccupied with doing all that you can to taste it here. This hope will lead you to taste the future. And so, how do you do this? Well, there's really two ways. You can write these things down. Two ways to hope. First, let God's presence impact you. Let his presence impact you. Spend time with him. Spend time thinking about what he's like. Spend time thinking about what he's going to do to the world. You will find that as you think about God, as you think about what he's going to do to the world, you will be changed from the inside out. You'll actually be changed to become someone whose actions bring about tastes of that. You're going to become someone um, who becomes more and more influenced by what God's going to do in the world and you'll begin to do things in the world that will be tastes of the world to come. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? And so longing for it changes us from the inside out. In 1 John 3, it says, whoever has this hope in himself purifies himself. This hope for the world to come makes you pure on the inside. It makes you someone uh, as God's presence impacts you, it changes you. You become like him. So the first thing is to let God's presence impact you. And then secondly is to spread God's impact to others. 
So you want to spread God's love, his power, his forgiveness, his kindness, and his generosity to others. When you do that, you bring heaven here. When you do these things, when you are hoping for the world to come, you fill the world with this. And the good news is that you begin to experience it now. You begin to experience heaven here. And your life spreads to others and gives them a taste of heaven here. And this is really everything that our church is about. Like our church's vision statement is all about this. Um, Our vision statement is a renewed city through a renewed people to the glory of God. I mean, it's us and our city bringing about God's glory. I mean, this is everything that we do as a church. What we see through everything that we do as a church is you and me, is us together experiencing the presence of God and then doing everything we can to reach into the presence of God and pull it into this city, into our homes, into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods. We are trying. What's amazing is that when you are renewed by the power and the presence of God, and then you live out the power and the presence of God, The city is renewed, and that actually is the glory of God. Make sense? I mean, that is the glory of God. So in some ways, we're aiming for a renewed city through renewed people to the glory of God. It's like we're offering everything up out of gratitude to what God has done for us. Right? We're saying, God, here's the gift. Meager as it is, imperfect as it is, we're doing this for you because of how much you've loved us. And so we're doing this for God's glory so that he gets credit, so that Jesus is known and famous in San Diego. And yet, when we do this, by doing these things and spreading God's ways, it is the glory of God because we are giving foretastes of the world that God is bringing. Man, this is huge. It's the impact of God's presence The opposite of hope is fear and despair. But Jesus entered into our fear and our despair on the cross. And he was resurrected. Jesus came out the other side of death and his resurrection means that our hope is sure. It's guaranteed. And so when we are in despair, when when we're in fear, when our future's uncertain, and we reach out to God, God grasps hold of our hand with the resurrected hand of Jesus. He reaches to us. Jesus, who was dead, but is now alive, his resurrection means that he will bring us through. And so, how does this impact us? Like, let's try to get a little bit even more practical with this. Um, I was talking to somebody else this last week, someone who is very much struggling with direction in life, someone who doesn't really know what their life is supposed to be about, and they're frustrated. And 
the question that was coming to my mind is, well, so what are you living for? Like, what are you, what are you aiming for in life? And it's like, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. When your hope is this, when you're hoping for the glory of God, you have a confidence. It gives you a confidence. Um, you're good. Like, you're good with life. Um, you have a sense that your life matters. Okay, because every life that is lived for God matters. Every life that's trying to taste the future that God has and bring that future today, God sees every single thing that you do for his glory. God sees it and he celebrates it. And so if God alone is the only person who sees the decisions that you make to sacrifice, to care about somebody else, to put someone else's desires ahead of yours, anytime you're generous with your stuff, with your money, with your time, if God sees that, he celebrates it. God recognizes it and says, look, nobody else might know this, but I know that you are bringing heaven here. And when you know that God sees you that way and evaluates your life that way, man, there's a confidence there. There's a confidence there. When that's happening, when you're having this hope, you stop caring whether or not your life matches up to the lives of people around you. Because God is celebrating you. Like God, the God that made you is celebrating you. So who cares what other people are doing? It helps you to let go of that. For me personally, when I am hoping for the glory of God, when I'm living for God's glory, the biggest way that this impacts me, and this is for me, it might work for you, might not, but for me, I know that if I am honoring God with my life, if I am living for his glory and to bring his glory into this life, I will not miss out on anything. They, they have this, they call it FOMO, fear of missing out, F-O-M-O. Um, I have this fear. I have this fear and it drives me to do all kinds of things. Um, when I am remembering that my hope is in the glory of God, I know that I am not gonna miss out on anything. There is nothing, like, I might have a sense, and this sort of goes up and down for me, you know, like the fear of missing out kind of like rises and falls, um, but I, I might feel like I'm gonna miss out, but if I'm hoping in God's glory, living for it, working for it, I know that my life is actually lining up with eternity and that God sees, God is honored. And I know that in that day, I will experience, I will have no regrets. None. How would you like to have no regrets at the end of your life? Right? If you live for God's glory, if you put him first in your life, right? If you live for the good news of Jesus, if you care about the people around you, 
You're going to be doing exactly what God wants for you, and you will have no regrets at the end of your life. And when you think about the end of your life like that, it will give you confidence in the present. Every time you hope for God's glory and lean into God's ways and the impact of God's presence, you will be planting a seed here that will bring heaven and give a taste of eternity. And so the outcome of this is the beginning of this phrase in verse 2. It says, when we hope for God's glory, we rejoice. We rejoice. The attitude and the spirit of someone who has no regrets, who realizes that their life matters now and has confidence, is that they rejoice. They worship God for revealing his glory in Jesus. And friends, if you're a Christian, you've already begun to experience this. You've got God's forgiveness. You're justified by faith. You have peace with God. And you have access into his presence. And so the glory of God moves us to worship. It moves us to worship. That God loves us. And he's promised to fix everything that's wrong with the world. And when we rejoice in this, it actually brings some of his fixing power to our world right now. More of him more of his world. And so this moves us body and soul to worship him. So some of us, the pinnacle of our worship is singing. We gather here to sing. You love to sing. Body and soul come together as you express your heart to God. For others, worship means serving. You just love to take care of people. You love to get things done. You love to, you love to make other people happy. That's worship. That's rejoicing. Um, and then others rejoice by celebrating. So you can sing, you can serve, you can celebrate. I mean, there's lots of different ways to rejoice and to worship. But all of this is because we're thrilled at the victory of Jesus. We're living out his victory. It's infecting us today. It's giving us hope, even in suffering. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this hope. Jesus, all of us have things that we chase after, but we want to come back to this, the glory of God. We long for the day the world will be made right. We hope for that day. So Jesus, please come and bring that day quickly. In the meantime, Lord, help us. Help us to rejoice in your victory and to bring tastes of your, of your glory into this life. We pray this in your name. Amen.